All right. Good morning, Reach Church. All right. So if kids want to head out to Reach Kids, they can do that. All right. So, Merry Christmas. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, all right. There we go. That's better. All right. So, uh, obviously, it is Christmas time. So, uh, we are going to talk about Christmas, but uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit differently than um, we normally do. So, uh, Christmas time is often kind of, it's a time of, of waiting, of preparation, of preparing ourselves for the coming of, of Jesus. At least that's what it used to be. That's what the people who originally celebrated Christmas, they, they received it as. That for, for hundreds of years, they received kind of hints and prophecies, and they had to receive those, those prophecies by faith. They had to respond to the message that Jesus was going to come, that God was going to come in human form, that he was going to come save his people, bring his kingdom. But uh, we don't have to wait. And that's where there's this kind of, this kind of weirdness about Christmas, where we kind of try to enter in symbolically, and like, oh, like, let's get excited about, about this season, but... We don't have to have faith. We don't really have anything to look forward to. We know what the, the end of the story is. So it's kind of a, a facade in a sense. And you kind of have to get kind of amped up and emotional about it uh, if you're going to really be excited. And that's where this year I want to focus on um, not what they waited for and what they were excited about, what they had to have faith to believe, but what, what we are supposed to get excited about. That yes, Jesus came once, but Jesus is coming again. And we have received prophecies about that time that are for us here and now. And that the first coming sets up his second coming. That Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come for his bride. He's going to come for his beloved to be with, with him for all eternity. And so instead of looking at, at Luke or, uh, or John, this kind of Christmas season, we're looking at Revelation. We're looking at actually one particular letter that Jesus gives to the churches. We're looking at the church of Ephesus, the message that Jesus now, the final prophet, gives to his people that we might be ready for his second coming, for the, the second advent, this kind of second Christmas. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. As a reminder, these are the words of Jesus uh, spoken to one particular church in um, the ancient equivalent of where, where Turkey is, actually, in, uh, in Ephesus. So read with me, Ephes or Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, so these are the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Pray with me. Father, as we hear from Jesus, as we hear um, your words that might prepare us for your second coming, we ask that you would give us, um, as it says, that you would have, uh, have an ear to hear these things. That we'd be excited about Jesus and that we'd hear them correctly and we'd hear them rightly, that we may have joy at the coming of Jesus. That he may be our first love and that we may... Uh, truly rejoice to see him come. Father, would you help us to, um, to love Jesus, love our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump right into this. Uh, this is a hard message. Now, oftentimes the, the messages are hard. Uh, John the Baptist comes with a hard message. The angels come with, with a hard-to-believe message, but uh, this is a hard message in and of itself that Jesus comes to this church and says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you have at first. All right, so what does this mean? Um, we could take this a couple of different ways. So we could think, okay, they, they used to love, they used to love better. They abandoned the love they had at first. Maybe they used to, um, to love the community better or love uh, non-believers better. All right, that doesn't fit. That wouldn't be their first love. All right, maybe, maybe he's saying like, you know, you used to love Jesus more and now you don't love him as much. You need to kind of amp up your love more. Um, it's not even that. That's not strong enough. What does it say? It says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is not love that we kind of as a verb. This is the, the person. You've abandoned your first love. Now, the first love throughout scripture is always ultimately Jesus. And he's coming to the, the people of Ephesus and saying, you know what, you, you used to love me, you used to be in this re relationship with me, you used to be uh, my bride, I used to be your husband, but now you have abandoned me. You've left me and forgotten me. You've abandoned. Alright, so, we're reminded, first of all, that, that this is a love relationship between Jesus and his church. That when we become believers, when we enter the, this body, we are the, the beloved of Christ and Christ is our first love. That is the fundamental relationship we have with Jesus. And he's saying that, that this church, this church in Ephesus, they, they abandon that. Okay. Now what does a church look like that has abandoned Jesus? Alright, let's look at it. Verse 2. I know your works. I know your works. And we, we want those works to be really bad. Like, oh, oh, they abandoned Jesus. Like, okay, let's, let's see what they did. Like, verse 2, they, I know your toil and your patient endurance. All right, so we, we expect the works to be bad, but no, they're, it's toil. All right, so that's as extreme a work as you can describe. Like, this is not a church that is, uh, is lazy or is apathetic. No, they are, they're doing the work. They're doing the work that, it, that entails suffering and hardship they're, 
kind of picking up their cross and following Jesus. They have patient endurance. So it's not just that like uh, they had this kind of burst of activity, but no, they, they've been doing this for a long time. They've been doing suffering for the sake of Jesus. They have been working diligently. All right, verse 3, it says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So it's not just that they're like, they're not bad-hearted, like, oh, I, I, they're just doing it for, for their own sake, for their own name. No, they're doing it for Jesus' sake. He says that. And they haven't grown weary in it. They're excited about the work that they're doing. They're diligently doing it. In that sense, they're, they're waiting for Jesus. And they're enduring and they're, they're working until he comes. All right, not only that, but uh, they have good theology. They have good theology. Also verse 2. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call, upon, call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. All right, so it's not that their theology is bad. They haven't abandoned uh, the truth. No, they've seen the apostles who, who might put upon them works and, and trying to work for salvation, and they've identified those people, and they have declared them to be false, kicked them out of the church. They've not tolerated lies or corruption of the word. All right, later it says, verse 6, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All right. Uh, we don't know who Nicolaitans are or what they believe. If you've heard uh, something, it's a rumor. Um, we don't really know. Uh, we try to speculate. All we know is that Jesus hates them, um, and they hated them too, so like they're on Jesus' team, so that's good. Um, all right, so they have good theology. They have good works. What they believe is right, what they're doing is right. All right, the hard thing about this is that I would have a hard time describing a better church than this. And if, if Jesus came and told this to me, I'd be like, well, all right, good. So I'm like doing a great job. And I, I wish that we could say this, like if I could say this from my heart, like, yeah, this is definitely true of me. I wish we could say this as a church, like, oh yeah, we're just toiling and we are loving it and we are not growing weary. Like, okay, we're not even doing this well. And yet this is a church that has abandoned Jesus. Now I say that just to remind us that like even when you look really good it doesn't mean you're in the right place. Alright, but it, it seems weird. It seems weird. Okay, like what, what else do they want me to do? So I'm going to give an analogy that hopefully is helpful, helpful for us. Um, let's take the example of a husband. Alright, a husband. And the husband is, is called to love his wife. And this husband, uh, he works hard, he works hard every day. He goes to work, works from, from 9 to 5, from 8 to 6, 5, 6 days a week. He goes and provides for his wife because he knows his wife needs that. He toils. He endures it and he does not grow weary. Alright, that's good. All right, and then, what, what more could you ask for? Alright, but then, but then Oh, the, the wives are thinking, well, no, no, I want more. And so, okay, what does he want? He, he, he reads marriage books. All right, in his free time, he doesn't, watch, he doesn't watch television or watch sports. No, he, like, reads on, like, the seven steps to a better marriage. <laughs> and he's memorized all the books. He knows all the theory. He knows all the, all the rules. 
All right, beyond that, he, he attends marriage conferences. All right, when we had a marriage conference, all right, 95% of the people who signed up were the women, and then they dragged their husbands. Okay, <laughs> that's just how it works. But no, no, he's going first. Like, he's going to go to those marriage conferences. All right, and uh, you say, like, well, uh, does, he, does he really know his wife? Like, he knows his wife. He knows his wife's favorite color. Like, he knows what gifts to give her. He knows her favorite food or favorite chocolate from Godiva. Like, he knows all these things about her. And if you asked him a question, he would know the answer. Where you're like, okay, you want more? Like, all right, he, his wife never has to do the dishes. Never has to vacuum. Because, like, he, he doesn't think she should have to do that. He just, he just loves her so much. He's a great husband. All right. But, but, there's one problem here. He hasn't talked to his wife for the last 10 years. <laughs> they, just, they just don't really, really communicate. He's totally ignored her. He knows the theory behind dates and like has, has elaborate date plans. How are you supposed to do a date? Like, are you supposed to bring flowers and then go to dinner and then like go out and walk on the beach? And, but he doesn't go on the dates. They've never been on a date before. All right, we've, okay, so we're looking at, okay, is this, a, is this a good marriage? How's his husband doing? All right, he has abandoned his wife. And that all this stuff is a, is a facade and it is ultimately worthless if he has no relationship with his wife. Now, I think it's, it's unsettling when we then relate that back to Jesus. But we get it. We get it in a husband-wife relationship. You can't just have this impersonal relationship. You can't not open your heart to one another, communicate, spend time together. And actually, all of that stuff that that husband was doing, he could use it as a defense and say, no, I'm, I'm a great husband. Of course I'm a great husband. Look at all the stuff I'm doing. Look, ask me any question about my wife. But all that actually is, is a a distraction from the call to love his wife and to be the husband. All right, that for, for us is oftentimes that same distraction. That we can say, you know, we've done a lot of good things and, and we continue to do good, do good things. Or like, look at our theology. Like, we have impeccable theology. We know all the right things. All right, that isn't the same as having an actual relationship with Jesus and talking to him and relating to him being personal with him, spending time with him. No. Is any of that stuff bad? No. This is good stuff. But the ultimate thing is, is Jesus. And we can do these things and still abandon him and leave him and have actually real, no actual relationship. All right. Do we feel guilty? Yes. All right. Yeah, that's, that's reality. And that's where, that's where we are left. And I just want to remind us that like the, the qualifications for a good Christian is not like, is not works in theology. It's that you are with Jesus. You have Jesus. And that once you've abandoned Jesus, you're no longer a Christian. That's the essence. And that as much as this church is calling itself church and looks like a church, Jesus says, I'm going to come and take the lampstand. Like, you won't be a church anymore. Because what ultimately matters is Jesus. 
All right, so I want to ask you, like thinking to yourself, wait, is this you? Is this you? Some questions. Uh, have you sinned lately? You have abandoned Jesus. All right, if any of you said no to have you sinned lately, all right, you, you have lied to yourself and you've abandoned Jesus. All right. Uh, <laughs> all, right like, all right, let's just keep this in perspective. I want to remind us all, like, yesterday, you probably sinned like 10,000 times. All right, not like those five times where like, oh, yeah, I was like, said something snarky and like got road rage that one time, like snatched something out of someone's hand while Christmas shopping. Like, those are, the, no, like, all the seconds that you like didn't worship Jesus and enjoy God and like do things for his ultimate delight, like, oh, those were sinful. And all the times that were like, you love something a little bit more than Jesus, like, that, that was sin too. All right, we have all abandoned Jesus. We abandon him every second of every day. All right, but let's, let's okay, let's take it more. Uh, what are you most excited about right now? In the whole world, or what are you most excited about? Are you most excited about Jesus and Jesus coming and being with Jesus and looking Jesus face to face? Like, if not, then you've abandoned him. If you're not waking up every second of the day and like, wow, like, I'm, I'm with Jesus right now, then, then you've abandoned him. All right, how do you spend your time? You have all this time carved out. Do you prioritize your time for Jesus? And, and want to spend time with him more than anything else? All right, let's go the religious route. So maybe you're doing that stuff, but like, okay, you listen to a sermon. What are you looking for in your sermon? Are you looking for the sermon to, to like teach you something new about theology? Are you looking for like something new and exciting or a different perspective on a passage or just, I want to hear like, be reminded about what the moral laws are. Or are you looking for the one that you love? Are you saying, I want to see Jesus. I, I love him. Where, where is my first love in this passage? I know he's there. Why didn't you give him to me? When you read the Bible, are you looking for Jesus? Are you delighted to see Jesus? When you pray, are you like just excited to lay your heart bare before the one you love? All right. For me, the answer to all those questions is no. And that's the problem. Uh, and that's the reality. All right, so we can, we can say this. And honestly, we need to be able to accept that that we do not love Jesus as we should. That we've all abandoned our first love. And that we've gotten distracted by, by works and by theology and by countless other things, by social agenda and politics and all this stuff that has crept in and just kept us from Jesus. All right. Uh, but, all right, some of you, some of you, you, you can say that's true. Like, yes, I feel distant from Jesus. I don't have much of a relationship with Jesus. But then you, you come back and you say, but honestly, honestly, I'm mad at Jesus for that. That I feel like it's not that I abandoned Jesus. Jesus abandoned me. And you say, well, like, I've, I've tried to read this book that's about Jesus' love for me, and it's just confusing, and I get nothing out of it. 
or I've prayed to Jesus and like he doesn't seem to respond. And it seems like I, I'm trying to reach out and he never reaches back. All right, I recognize that some of you feel like that. And we all feel like that at some point. All right, but the thing that, that I have to challenge you with that is if you feel that way, how are you responding to that? When you go through that, like, is it the equivalent to, like, my wife didn't wake up this morning in my bed and, like, I needed to go find her. Something's missing. Like, I'm going to do whatever I can to go find my first love. I'm going to go see, like, tear the world apart until I find him again. That's how we should respond to when Jesus feels like he's, he's far, when he feels like he's abandoned us. And the, the reality is oftentimes we're, like, very apathetic and passive in that process. Or you just need help. All right, this is, a, this is a love letter from your first love to you. And if you can't read it, like, get help reading it. It's hard to read. This is ancient literature. Like, sorry, but that's the only love letter we got. Um, and if you need help, like, I can help. People in the church want to help. If you feel like you don't know how to talk to Jesus, then you need to figure out how to do it. All right, that's, that's why I'm here. I don't know if I have, if anyone's ever explained that to you, but like if you're, <laughs> if you're like bad at this or like have questions or feel like you like can't, can't find Jesus in this thing, like can't find why you should love him in this book, like that's why I am here for your pastor, okay? Oftentimes, I, too often I hear like, well, you're just so busy. Like, no, I'm like supposed to be busy with you guys because you have those kind of questions and like you guys aren't so perfect that you don't need help. All right. I should be busier than I am. I know you guys. So, uh, <laughs> and I know myself. So like we're, we're, all, we're all kind of making, trying to make it through together. All right. If you struggle with this, like, please don't blame Jesus. Like he doesn't abandon. He doesn't run. He's running towards us. The problem is we're running way faster than he gets us. In your heart of hearts, we have to see, like, most of us, if we think Jesus has abandoned us, it's because we don't actually want to find him. All right. Uh, all right, this is hard to hear. And in one sense, I just want to lay the foundation, like, it was never about works. It was never about theology. It was always about Jesus. This is the standard, is to love Jesus. And to not abandon him, to run to him. Now, with that in mind, how do, how do, you, how do you grow in love with Jesus? How do you love him? We're gonna, we need to see him, see him once again. So, let's look at uh, Revelation 1. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. <clears throat> verses 12 through 16. Uh, so my hope is to just help you see Jesus a little bit better today. They would see his love for us, that he first loved us, and that's why we love him. So first, let's, let's, see, let's see a picture of him. Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a, a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right. All right, this is Jesus. This is our first love. This is our beloved. And unfortunately, the, the problem is that oftentimes we get stuck in the Christmas Jesus. In the incarnate Jesus. And we kind of see Jesus as like this weakling who seems kind of pathetic. And like he's just always dying for everyone and like wandering around homeless. And it, it seems like, okay, like, Jesus, I, I, I know you sh I should like you, but like, I feel like you're kind of guilting me into it. Like, oh, I did so much for you. Like, all right, this is also a picture of Jesus. All right, so we have kind of like the like nerdy, sad picture of Jesus, which is incarnate Jesus. All right, but that's not the full story. All right, so like nerdy Jesus, like this is him. Like he takes off, you know, like the librarian when she takes off her glasses and like pulls out her hair and goes like, you know, and you're like, whoa, like, like what? Like, that's Jesus? All right. All right. My hope is that we have that picture of Jesus. Like, he's both. He's both. And he's like, I know, right? It helps with the baldness. Um, I used to be able to do that. He is, I used to have long hair. Um, I did. It was, it was great. Um, I didn't do that often. Um, all right. So, Jesus is like more impressive than I think we give him credit for. And if like he seems kind of like pathetic and weak, it's because he became like us. All right, so like the, the ugliness and weirdness of Jesus, like that's his incarnation so he could be like us and relate to us and take on humanity. So it's not like, oh, like Jesus is just so cute laying in the manger. It's like, no, that's a message that that like humanity needed to be reborn and God needed to become human because we had screwed it up so badly. And because we didn't stand a chance, we needed a whole new humanity, a whole new personhood, and Jesus, God himself, was going to do it for us. It's because of love that he looks like that. It's because, of, because he loves us and he cared and he knew we needed that. And so he became weak, he became helpless, he became poor, first century Jerusalem poor, like real, real poor, right? Jesus became like virtually nothing for us because he loved us. This is, this is the full picture. Um, all right, so he came, he came, and what did he do? What did he do for us? We've been talking about uh, ob obedience that Oh, like a real Christian toils and, and works. Like, all right, what did Jesus do? Jesus, he came and did the law. And he perfectly fulfilled it. He did works that we will never do. So all those times you're, you're called to like, go love people sacrificially. Like Jesus actually did that. He spent his whole life like, all about other people, not about himself. 
All right, every time he spoke, he says, he says, I have only ever spoken what God told me to speak. I never spoke for myself. All right, that's the standard in how we're all supposed to speak. It's to never speak anything but God, what God himself would put in our mouths to say. For most of us, that's never happened. And that Jesus did that all the time. All right, we talked about giving a couple weeks ago. That the standard for righteousness is to give everything to the poor and put up every single treasure in heaven. All right, Jesus alone in the whole history of the world has done that. He did that till he was naked on the cross with nothing left. All right. We talk about how we're supposed to become, become weak and become poor to enter into the lives of people, to suffer with them. Like, we have not done that, but Jesus has. All of this toiling, all of this strife, like, oh, I, I, I'm going to earn myself. I'm going to look like this great Christian. Like, that was never the point. The point was you couldn't do that, and that's why Jesus did it. That's why Jesus did it. All right, we think we, got, we have great theology. All right, Jesus actually understands the Trinity. Like, in his soul. We try to piece it together and like, oh, that's a mysterious, I don't even know. Uh, you don't have good theology. Jesus has good theology. Thankfully, he gives us his theology and he has grace with our bad theology. All right, in all of this stuff, it's only about Jesus. And then Jesus came, he died for our sin so that he might remove from us all of the shame and the guilt and he might give us his perfection. His perfection. All right, not his goodness, his perfection. And you sitting before me, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are perfect. You are perfect. Flawless. That you have perfectly obeyed. And that even if you go, you go sin your brains out after the service, if your faith is in Jesus, you are perfect. You are flawless. Sin cannot touch you. That, that God has nothing on you. It's not your righteousness. It never was. It was never that, oh, if only I believe this thing. Like, no, just, you need Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You believe he is all you need. That's good theology. And when Jesus sees you, when God sees you in Jesus, he has nothing but love. He sees you as nothing but perfect. As the ideal, perfect Christian. All right, that's the love that he has for you. He sees you as, as this picture in Revelation, that you see, he sees you as that kind of person. The glorious one. Shining and radiant. Glorious. He loves us. He really does. He loves you. In spite of all the things that you do. In some sense, because you have done them, because he has forgiven them. All right, that's the gospel. That's Jesus' love for us. And now I'm saying, okay, go be with this person. Go talk to that person. Now, none of you should leave here thinking like, wow, my spouse really looks a lot like a sitter. Like, no, <laughs> go spend time with Jesus and Jesus will be better. All right? Jesus will be the perfect one who who loves you unconditionally, who loves you perfectly, 
who will show you your sin and won't shame you or guilt you about it. All right, and we're going to wait. We are waiting to that day when we can look him in the face and we're to sit down and be with him and love him and be his bride. That's what this waiting period is all about. All right, how does that sound? That sounds good. Yeah, what's that? Sounds pretty good. Um, go get Jesus. Go get him. All right, if you don't have him, go get him. He's better. He loves you more than you could ever love him, and he's more faithful, and he will never abandon you, even though we totally suck at this. Amen? Yeah. Amen. That's the gospel. All right, let's, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we are... Um, We are shocked by your love for us. And we recognize that we have hard hearts and we are blind and we are deaf because we hear these things and we get the, the tiniest hint of a stir of emotion or, or joy out of them when we should be jumping up and down. And Father, we, we know you have grace for that in Jesus too. So would you, uh, would you, by your spirit, open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to see the glory and beauty and perfection of Jesus that you have given to us? Would you give us an excitement and a, a joy in the promise that we get to see him one day? And not just see him, but, but be the, the apple of his eye, the, the object of his delight. Thank you for Jesus. Would you keep us from distractions from anything but him? Thank you.